Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast with me, Gemma Purdy, Dirk Tomsa and Dave McRae. We've gathered the Talking Indonesia team once again for the last of our election 2019 series, looking back over yesterday's presidential and legislative polls. We'll have to wait for the official count to know precisely how many of Indonesia's 190 million registered voters took part yesterday, but for now, the quick count results seem clear enough. And with around 90% of the data collected, we know that between 54 or 55% have chosen Joko Maruf and 45, 46% of the votes are going to Prabowo Sandi. Perhaps I could start by asking you, Dirk, what do you see as the key factor in Jokowi's victory in the presidential poll? Yeah, thanks, Gemma. Well, it's hard to pin it down onto just one factor, but a few things probably stick out. First of all, the incumbency factor for Jokowi, that he made good use of the resources that his office um, provided him with. He used it to good effect by implementing, you know, affordable health care, education, infrastructure programs that were reasonably popular and helped his electability rate to remain quite consistent throughout his term. Second factor, perhaps, that his challenger, Prabowo Subianto, didn't have the kind of resources available to him that he had in 2014 and therefore was unable to mount a similar kind of attack or aggressive campaign that he did in 2014. Tied into that was also that the race was a bit different because of what happened in 2017 in the Jakarta governor election. So religious identity politics, sectarian politics were quite prominent or were feared to be quite prominent. Jokowi anticipated that, wanted to have a vice presidential candidate that could help him sort of blunt these kinds of attacks. And even though he didn't get the vice president uh, running mate that he wanted to, the one whom he ended up with, Maruf Amin, eventually proved quite effective. He helped secure a large number of votes from the sort of conservative, traditionalist Muslims, especially in Central and East Java, where two of the main battles were fought in this election. So I guess a combination of incumbency, um, lack of resources, or comparatively speaking, lack of resources for Prabowo, as well as the inability of Prabowo to use the identity card as effectively as many had feared. All that helped Jokowi secure victory. Interestingly, perhaps one last thing, when Prabowo in the final weeks of the campaign was playing the religious card more aggressively, I think that inadvertently also helped Jokowi because it probably convinced a lot of voters who previously had contemplated not to vote at all in response to the appeals to Golput to abstain, they now came out realizing that our oh, Prabowo is actually playing this card and rather than supporting that, I go out and um, vote for Jokowi. Yeah. I mean, the incumbency thing is a huge one. I agree with you on all the points, but the resources at the disposal of the sitting president in terms of media coverage and, you know, talking about his achievements is quite 
pronounced and it was very much used by Jokowi's campaign team, as you would expect any politician to do so, to talk about all those achievements. I also recognise that in the last really week, Jokowi was bringing out some really big guns, I guess, in term, in the campaign around his health program, for example. There were little clips on YouTube and on Instagram, which literally had mothers and sick children talking about how they would not be here if not for Jokowi's programs. So really pulling at the heartstrings, there was a great deal of that coming out of his campaign. Very clever, I thought, as well. Yeah, and that's all proven quite effective. And the quick count seemed to be quite clear. But in a development that perhaps surprised a few people, Prabovo has once again chosen to challenge these quick counts. Dave, you were in Indonesia on election day. Can you tell us a little bit of why Prabovo chose to once again come out and declare himself the winner? and how that declaration differed from what he did in 2014 when he also challenged the widely acknowledged quick count results and declared himself the winner. Yeah, no, well, I think this time around, even before polling day, we've seen Prabowo laying the groundwork to try to discredit the results. I suspect he may well have seen polling himself that gave him the idea that this was not an election he was going to win. So we'd seen claims of irregularities ahead of the polls. Even as I was sitting in a polling booth in Jakarta waiting for counting to start yesterday, looking at Twitter, I saw his supporters like Fahri Hamza, the deputy speaker of the legislature, beginning to circulate claims of irregularities using a hashtag, this is cheating. So I think there was always an agenda of discrediting the result of coming out with a different version of what had happened in the election. I think the big difference this time, because as you say, Prabowo also claimed victory despite all reputable quick counts showing Jokowi to win in 2014, is that back in 2014, you had major media groups supporting each of the two rival camps. And so you had the channels like TV1, the MNC channels, broadcasting quick counts that were showing Prabowo as the victor calling him the victor, and so the public were, were left to adjudicate between these two rival versions of events, and even then, most of them did not believe Prabowo. This time, I think the media has been very wary of Prabowo's claims. Uh, to my knowledge, there, although the Prabowo camp have claimed that their victory is based on their own quick count, their own exit poll, and their own so-called real count of a sample, although it's not clear what sort of sample, of polling booths across the country, there aren't different published quick counts, to my knowledge, for the public to adjudicate between. And a station like TV1, that in 2014 was proclaiming Prabowo's victory, covered his claims yesterday, but had quick counts at the bottom of the screen showing Jokowi as the winner. So I think the obstacle for Prabowo in gaining momentum for his claim is that he's having to do it really outside of the mainstream media and, and mainstream institutions. The front pages of papers today are showing quick counts showing that Jokowi was the winner. His own running mate, Santiago Uno, has been missing in action. The, their story was that he couldn't appear with Prabowo last night, couldn't give a statement in support of Prabowo's position because he was sick. But I think a lot of the public and Prabowo supporters will find these claims to victory far less convincing without Santiago Uno firmly on board. The one thing we do have to watch is we've heard 
talk of a, a prayer meeting tomorrow night to celebrate Prabowo's victory uh, at the National Monument, including some of the, the attendees of the large anti-Ahok rallies that happened back in 2016, 2017. And, and if Prabowo is to build momentum for his claims, it, it's going to have to be through social media and through networks like that, because I, I think other constituencies that might have been on board in 2014 simply are not this time. Yeah, it's certainly an event to watch, not only in terms of attendance, how many people will follow that call from Prabowo, but I'd also be curious to see whether Sandy will have recovered from his illness and will come to that prior meeting. If we can just stick with Santiago Uno just briefly, because he, I think, was one of the more interesting characters during the campaign. Gemma, if I can ask you just briefly, what do you think was his impact on the campaign? Did he help Prabowo or was he ultimately sort of pursuing his own agenda and trying to position himself for the next election, for which it would be better if Prabowo didn't win? <laughs> I think he helped Prabowo quite a lot. I mean, I definitely think he helped himself. His profile is now you know, pretty prominent. I think every Indonesian knows who he is, what he stands for, and he has a lot of support. The energy that Sandy was able to bring to that ticket was extraordinary because we could see that Prabowo, whether or not he was making a conscious decision to step back and let Sandy do that, or whether or not he's just older now and does not have the, the energy and the capacity to get out on the hustings in the same way. But it did, it you know, it absolutely elevated the, the level of energy and dynamism around that ticket to have this younger candidate for vice president running about. And so I do think that it helped him. We can also argue that it, it just uh, shored up that Islamist base that the Prabowo Sandi team relies upon. And, you know, Sandi was able to do that, uh, demonstrating his piousness, etc. But he is, I guess he's just outside the millennial branch, the bracket. <laughs> but he, you know, he's got, he's, got, he's got views that young people definitely would be attracted to. So I, I, in answer to your question, short answer is I think that he definitely helped. And in, on both sides, helped in his own position too, if he chooses to go forward and, and stand for president himself one day, that, he, you know, that's definitely an option. We have to only spec, we can only speculate as to how he's feeling right now, what his role is going to be in the next 24 hours, the next weeks ahead. And that will, you know, be defining too of his position as a political actor. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point that you make there, Gemma, in that I think the dilemma for Santiago Uno, if we you know, perhaps assume for a second that he may not be fully on board with Prabowo's claims, is that he needs to preserve his reputation for 2024 for a presidential run there. But the main political vehicle available to him is, of course, Prabowo's Greater Indonesia Movement Party, Gurindra. And to inherit that party, of course, uh, I, I guess he may need to handle delicately the way that he distances himself from Prabowo's claims, if in fact that is what he decides to do. And, you know, we see in yesterday's quick count results a suggestion that Gurindra remains a, a viable political vehicle. It, it looked to have achieved a, a double-figure count in the polls. And it's been one of the interesting features of the election this time that the legislative election held on the first day of the presidential election for the first time has, has largely been overshadowed in our attention and I think in many Indonesians' attention. But, you know, across the campaign, we have seen Indonesia's streets plastered with myriad campaign posters. When you watch Indonesian television, it's been 
filled with ads for the 16 political parties that have been taking part. And of course, we did also have quick counts for the legislative election count yesterday. If I could stick with you, Gemma, uh, what were your key takeaways from those quick count results for the legislative elections? Well, I guess what we can see from the quick count is really a continuation of the results from 2014 elections in terms of which regions have gone with particular party alliances. There's not really many surprises except that we have seen PDIP extend or deepen its position in Central and East Java. And for that Many commentators are crediting Maruf as his uh, vice presidential candidate. So that is significant because we know that in terms of numbers, you know, the po- population numbers in that part of Indonesia, we have a huge concentration and very large numbers of people. But elsewhere in the archipelago, I really there's not been a general change on the face of it. What you do see is that we are going to have several parties who have contested this election, not achieved the 4% threshold that's necessary in order to gain seats in the parliament. This includes some new parties and some old parties. Among the old parties that look like they're they will not be members of the next parliament. We have Hanura. Also, the PPP party is currently on quick poll uh, results is around just over 4%. So really just on the threshold there. So whether or not they'll fall back or go forward, we're yet to see how that will pan out. A big gain has been achieved by the party Nasdem, which is currently around about 9.5% of the vote, which is you know very significant. Early on when the quick count was coming out for the legislative votes. Gurindra was lagging behind and there was, you know, some concern that this didn't look right. Um, That's been rectified. Golkar is kind of just coming in below Gurindra. So as you say, double figures were up around the 12% for Gurindra and Golkar just behind that. But overwhelmingly, we have a PDIP extending its, you know, significant lead. 20 plus percent is, you know, what we're currently looking at for that party. So, you don't really see very much of a change landscape here. Maybe some of the parties connected to the incumbent are reaping some benefit. That coattail effect that we talked about uh, last time we all got together, maybe that's having some impact. How do you see it, Dirk? Well, as you mentioned, the coattail effect, it's almost certainly not as pronounced as we would have expected. You're right that PDIP won the election again, but... Its vote share is only marginally higher than it was in 2014. Girindra, okay, is now in second position, which is perhaps a result of the Kotel effect, but it also perhaps may just indicate the ongoing decline of Golka, which has been losing votes in most elections. So maybe it was only a matter of time that they would slip to, uh, to third place. Some commentators have made the point that parties like PAN and PKS have benefited from the coattail effect in the sense that they perhaps benefited from Prabovo, but perhaps also from Santiago Uno, that the whole team came together. And PAN, of course, was mentioned before the election of being at risk of perhaps not making the threshold. But as several commentators have pointed out, Measuring the support base, especially for the sort of medium-sized parties, especially the Islamic parties, has been kind of difficult for pollsters, has been in the past. So we probably shouldn't be too surprised that eventually PAN and most probably also PPP, which are currently, as you say, sitting at the lowest of those parties with just over 4%. Ultimately, we shouldn't be too surprised that they did make it. Hanura 
was probably to be expected to be going out. It was always just a vehicle for Viranto, and they have lots of internal problems there. What perhaps is interesting and sort of confirms the impressions of many people outside Indonesia, that new parties are having a really hard time making it into parliament. In this election, we saw four new parties contesting the election, and one party in particular, the PSI, received a lot of media attention overseas for its agenda, for the fact that most of its politicians were young, many of them were from ethnic minorities. And despite all this attention, especially outside Indonesia, they didn't come close to the electoral threshold. How do you explain that? Why is it so difficult for parties of all different persuasions? On the other hand, we had new parties affiliated with the Suharto family, for example. So from very different ends, yet, yeah, as a new party, you just seem to struggle. I think to establish yourself in what is already a multi-party landscape, where observers often sort of highlight the subtle ideological distinctions between many of the electoral players. Uh, you do have Islamic parties and, and nationalist parties, but the nationalist parties uh, often take on components of a religious agenda and vice versa. So it's quite a difficult field to distinguish yourself. If we look at the last new party that did succeed in making its way into the parliament, the National Democratic Party led by Surya Palo, it has a number of advantages. Uh, Surya Palo is a major media mogul, so he has financial resources, he has media outlets in Metro TV and Media Indonesia to promote his party, to promote himself, and he was a long-established figure in Golkar, and so inherits a political network as a result. Most of these new parties have none of those advantages. PSI, for example, I, I think have actually run, in terms of their media presence, a, a very slick campaign, very well-produced events and campaign materials. As you say, they have a, a youth message, a, a message that appeals particularly to an international audience of, of being pro-minority. But without that saturation presence in media, without established political networks, and, and with a pro-minority message that really appeals mostly to a very small sliver of the Indonesian population, I, I, I don't think it's particularly surprising that they haven't made the grade. I think based on the quick counts, the party that has come closest is Perindo, associated with the media mogul and you know very substantial businessman Hari Tano Sudibio. But even there, with his substantial resources, I think it really does show the obstacles of starting from scratch and, and getting a party up over that, that 4%. Yeah, and I guess there's a conversation for after this election about whether or not that 4% for new, new parties is simply too hard and that there perhaps needs to be some reform and maybe a reduction in that potentially. This is something that I've seen some commentary about. So, but at the end, end of the day, the polls were run extremely smoothly with, as we, we said, 80% of the 190 million potential voters turning out and having the opportunity to vote, most of them anyway. But there were some irregularities. And you, both of you, Dave and Dirk, wrote about the potential for regularities in this election. Has it been as bad as you thought it might have been or better? I agree with you that Overall, this election has been run quite smoothly. Um, the irregularities that we know about so far, to some extent, are in regions where we unfortunately often have irregularities or problems with delivering the logistics of an election. For example, in Papua, in several districts in Papua, the ballot papers didn't arrive in time, for example. That's very unfortunate. But 
perhaps not entirely unexpected. Where we also had problems was in some overseas locations. For example, in Australia or in Malaysia, there were problems um, that battle papers had been reported to be filled in prior to the election in Malaysia, whereas in Australia, the consulate general in Sydney, for example, was struggling to accommodate the large number of voters and eventually shut the doors and didn't let them vote. So these are issues that ideally shouldn't happen, but they wouldn't have had an impact on the overall result. Overall, these are really marginal issues that are unfortunate for the voters that are affected. But overall, I think the KPU has to be commended for organizing a very well-run election once again. And Indonesian voters have to be commended for coming out in large numbers. Um, in the run-up to the election, there was a lot of talk about abstaining and there was a movement trying to persuade people not to vote because the choices were just not there and that the whole system is flawed, etc. But that didn't really wash with the majority of voters. 80% is a remarkably high turnout. And the fact that almost all of these voters were given a chance to vote properly is a really good sign for the electoral process in Indonesia. I think the interesting thing for me around irregularities is in Indonesia, you're, you're never going to have an election free of irregularities. In, in this election, you had 800,000 plus polling booths uh, across a country of thousands of thousands of islands. It's just a massive logistical exercise and things are going to go wrong. But in an election where the quick counts are showing a, a clear margin of probably somewhere in the region of, of 8%, give or take, that's many millions of votes. And the Electoral Commission has talked about, as of last night, they'd found irregularities in around 2,000 polling booths, uh, about 0.3% of the total. That's simply not nearly enough votes to affect that result uh, based on the information we have at the moment. And again, it was the stark contrast on social media that sort of felt yesterday. On, on the one hand, you see these claims coming out of this is cheating and so on and so forth being spread by supporters of the Prabowo camp. On the other hand, the polling booth experience in Indonesia almost has something of a festival element to it. Uh, you know, we, we also saw across Indonesia families voting together, posting photos of themselves on social media of having their finger inked after having voted, highlighting the various other activities organised around the vote at each of the polling stations. And, and there was nothing in all of that social media content that suggested sort of systematic and widespread cheating happening at the polling booths yesterday. So as someone, you yourself were there observing the voting and, you know, it's a very transparent process, right? Well, uh, you don't have many voters at each polling station because there are 800,000 plus polling stations across the country for about 190 million registered voters. You're, you're looking at several hundred people at each polling station. And so, you know, either immediately after voting has finished around 1pm or after the committee has had time to have lunch and a bit of a break, people open up the ballot boxes at the polling station, hold each one up so that people can see where the hole has been punched through the candidate they've chosen and do the tally there on the spot. In some parts of Indonesia, you get, you know, reasonable crowds coming to to watch that counting process in the area of Jakarta. I was in a, a kind of high-income elite neighbourhood. You just had a handful of, of people coming along as, as well as the witnesses and other people there in official capacity. But basically what it means is you're 
polling booth level tally is, is finished pretty early on the day. Party witnesses, candidate witnesses, representatives of the Electoral Commission and the Electoral Supervisory Board can all take a photo of the polling booth level tally and then use that to, to check against irregularities. And it's that transparency at the polling booth level, in fact, that enables these remarkable quick counts that we have in Indonesia that were giving a, a reliable picture of the result of the presidential election, certainly by about four o'clock in the afternoon when, when voting had only finished at 1pm. If I can jump in there, I saw quite a few postings on social media of voting extending actually late into the night. So that was quite possibly because there were a lot more people involved as compared to your experience in Jakarta. But what it also shows is that the whole election process is perhaps it's it's necessary to cut, to have so many polling booths and such relatively small numbers of voters because every voter has to fill in five different ballot papers and they all need to be counted so if there were actually more people voting in individual polling booths the voting process would take even longer and that raises some questions about the logistical challenges of the electoral format that we have now i think we mentioned earlier on this was the first time that indonesia experimented with having presidential elections and parliamentary elections at the same time, on the same day. In your view, is that a system that Indonesia should retain going forward to 2024? Or what are the pros and cons of running simultaneous elections for parliament and president on the same day? I think that there are lots of advantages, actually, for running the two elections simultaneously, or there's more than two elections. But obviously, in terms of cost for the KPU and efficiency, it has its value. But as you pointed out, I think that that means that the race for the legislature is is underplayed that it is not top of mind for the voters when they come in and that perhaps it complicates their decision-making because, for example, they have to weigh up at the national level, you know, their choices between two candidates who are representing coalitions of parties with their local concerns where candidates that they prefer might be from a completely different party, from a rival coalition, for example, from from their preferred presidential candidate. So it, it is complicated and I you know, would not really actually want to be in their shoes making that decision and going through those five ballot papers trying to reconcile all those competing interests in front of them at that moment. Dave, what is your take on this? Do you think that this is something that needs to be reconsidered? I think various people I spoke to here in Indonesia expressed very limited enthusiasm for these simultaneous elections. Uh, I think we have to remember moving to a simultaneous election from having the election several months apart was never a policy decision. This was a result of a constitutional court challenge and a decision of the constitutional court shortly before the election five years ago. And I think one of the big downsides of the simultaneous election is that you have seen the legislative poll largely overshadowed by the presidential election. Uh, It's made it harder for the parties to significantly change their votes. And it's also had the effect of massively extending the duration of the presidential campaign. In the past, you would have the legislative election in April, the presidential election around July, and so you'll be looking at, at, a, at a campaign for the presidential election of, you know, roughly a couple of months of duration, even if perhaps the candidates would be clear shortly before that. This time, the candidates had to be confirmed last August. The campaign proper started in September. 
And, you know, I think that's something that both increases the cost of running. You, you've got to keep up a campaign for, for so much longer. And it's also something that various people have highlighted as contributing to what has been something of a nastier campaign in the attacks be- between candidates and, and the, the smears we've seen the supporters of both camps launch at each other. Uh, and, you know, part of the justification for that has been that sort of if you simply promote yourself for seven months, people will tune out. And, and so you need something different to, to retain the voters' attention. So I, I think there are significant drawbacks. I don't have a good sense of whether Indonesia will move back to separating its elections because the difficulty is that, that once you do enact a system, uh, it, it develops quite a strong inertia. Yeah, and the regional elections will also be held simultaneously into the future at They already started that with merging several hundred elections onto the same date. And I think the plan is into the future to have them all on the same day. Uh, So I think, yeah, partly for efficiency and um, financial reasons, this this trend is probably likely to continue. And that may also be then the same for the national level elections, parliamentary and presidential elections. Um, One thing that is changed therefore now as compared to 2014 is now that the parliamentary election, once the general election commission announces the final results, we will not then see the process of negotiating and cobbling together coalitions for the presidential election. That's all done and dusted now. So we just have to wait now until the general election commission announces its final results. But we, of course, also have to wait what the Prabowo camp will do now. Are they going all out to challenge this? Are they going to try to mobilize people in the streets? Are they going to the constitutional court? Are they even going to the United Nations, <laughs> as Hashim had indicated in a pre-election statement? That's probably unlikely. But yeah, there's a few uncertainties uh, going forward. But generally, basically, Jokowi can plan for forming government now. Maybe to conclude this podcast, what are your views on how the two challengers will approach these coming months? Is Prabowo going to try to extract some favors from Jokowi when the cabinet is being formed, if we assume that ultimately Jokowi will be inaugurated? Or will he just remove himself from politics altogether? Or what are your views? Just a bit of speculation. I think that, you know, going back to something that Dave said about having to keep the conversation going and the momentum going through such a long campaign, and when you wonder if this act from Prabowo is essentially doing that is is kind of for his for his voters anyway keeping himself relevant keeping the election going as it were past the date of voting he just did not want to concede defeat and i think that the words he used were something along those lines like he said we have won in certain areas according to the quick counts that our volunteers have collected and i am refusing defeat so he you know this is this is kind of his his style as leader he you know, never never backed down so you know, there's all that speculation of why he's doing what he's doing right now and whether or not he will take it to the constitutional court. Given what he did last time, potentially he may, but the gap between in the quick count results, the gaps is is larger than last time. So last time it was around six or seven percent. And we're now looking at a little bit more than that. But actually, you know, depending how it all washes up, it's it's not a lot more. It depends too on, I guess, the financial support to run this legal campaign. Will he have that? Will he have the backing of Hashim, his brother, and Santiago Uno and his money? 
it, there's that question again about how Sunday feels about this. So there's a there's a few things that we could speculate as to whether or not it will happen. Prabol himself, will he go another five years? Will he go another round? For me, I. You know, I felt like he was very slow to start this particular campaign. And, you know, he kind of made a show of it, like, oh, if the people want me, I will do it. And that was a bit of his his style in this. But I do get a sense that, you know, he's on a high right now. And if I'm sure that would be how he reflects on it. But if he had to do this again, I think it would, would be difficult for him to do that. But it's all speculative. Perhaps someone like Santiago Uno could be of benefit to a team like Jokowi's, a government like Jokowi's. Let's see if they can do some kind of trading in in the next government. Yeah, and I think, you know, although Dirk, you mentioned we don't have the horse trading we would normally see to determine coalitions to nominate a presidential candidate, we will have to see if the vote share of the different coalition partners to Jokowi changes as a result of the legislative election. This time you have Golkar a member of his coalition from the outset rather than coming in late, whether they will demand a, a higher share of ministries as a result. So I do think there's some bargaining to follow both within the Jokowi coalition for the next cabinet and, as you say, also potentially if, if Prabowo is able to mount strong pressure on Jokowi for some sort of concession in return for, for dropping his challenge if he is able to build a momentum that that challenge doesn't seem to have picked up straight away. The other dynamic to watch, of course, will be not so much in the next months, but over the next years, as, as we start to see how people are positioning themselves for 2019. We now know we won't have an incumbent. Jokowi cannot run again. Uh, it's hard to imagine Maruf Amin mounting a, a challenge for president. And so figures like Santiago Uno, you know, and Anis Baswedan as Jakarta governor, who had quite a muted presence, has been my impression during this election, and, and maybe other regional leaders or, or figures that we're not thinking of. I, I think, you know, over, over the next months and years, we'll be looking to gain that prominence that might position themselves for a tilt at the, at the presidency in 2024 in, in what might be somewhat more of an open field. Yeah, I would certainly hope that in the next election we would see more than two candidates pass. That would probably be healthy for the competitive process. And you've already mentioned a few names. How all these candidates come together will be one factor in their you know, negotiations. But also, as always, how the polling figures pan out, how the electability figures pan out. If in the end, say, two years into Jokowi's presidency, we see two, can two or three candidates that are way ahead above all the others, then it's very likely that the parties will gather behind those. But as you say, it's quite possible that we'll have a more open field. Um, it's quite possible that we have a stack of leaders who have come through new pathways to power, for example, through the local level, like Anis or even Juan Kamil. But I wouldn't discount the possibility that we also see attempts at continuing the more familiar pattern of dynastic politics that Agus Yudhoyono will want to have a run. Mega will perhaps try to push Puan forward. Who knows? Yeah, it, that's all a bit speculative. Let's give Jokowi a fair run at his second term first. And um, we will keep up this podcast over the next few years, hopefully. And then we'll watch what kind of de developments will unfold. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you both for your time and thanks for joining us today on Talking Indonesia. We'll be back again on Thursday, the 2nd of May with Dirk as the episode host. Remember, you can listen to our entire archive of 102 
two episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. But until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast and bye for now. Thank you.